Amen. I know how the story ends. Jesus won. Jesus is winning. And Jesus will certainly win. You can be seated. So good to see you. Join me in prayer. We pray to our gracious, merciful God. Oh God, You are worthy of our worship. You are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of all the glory in all creation forever and ever. And so Lord, help us to fold our lives into that grand story. Thank You that You've revealed to us how the story ends. I pray that You would help us to live our lives in light of that. The, the victory of Jesus. The fact that Jesus is and will always be undefeated. Thank You for the Gospel that makes that true. Well, thank you for this moment. Thank you for this moment in history, this moment in our lives. That we can gather together, that we can be in one accord, that we can be focusing on the same truth, singing the same truth, hearing the same truth together, encouraging one another by our presence here, by our voices. God, I thank you for these people. I thank you for these people that I love so dearly. Thank you for entrusting them this morning to me. I love them so much. I know you love them far better than I do and greater than I do, but Lord, I love them and I pray that you would help me to serve them in this moment. I pray that you would help me to encourage them. I pray that you would help me to challenge them. I pray that you would help me to declare your truth faithfully that your people might be built up and matured and strengthened. I pray, Lord, this morning that what we know not teach us what we have not, give us. And what we are not, make us. Lord, sanctify us by the truth. Your word is truth. Be glorified in this moment and, and let your glory resound through our lives as your word reverberates in our souls and changes us, transforms us, conforms us to your will and to your ways. God, I need you in this moment. We need you. Let these, your dear people, hear a better sermon than the one I can preach. Holy Spirit, interpret, convict, guide, bless, and set free. Do all this for Jesus' glory. In His name I pray. Amen. Amen. I do thank God for you. I thank God that you braved the cold to be here this morning. I count it a high privilege to open God's Word with you now. So go ahead and take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 12. We've been studying the book of Romans, passage at a time, and now we're in the second half of the book of Romans where Paul is exhorting us to live out the truths of the Gospel that he explained in the first 11 chapters. Gospel doctrine creates and fuels Gospel application. Gospel truth creates and fuels gospel obedience. We're going to see that over and over again in this second part of the book of Romans. We'll look at just two verses this morning. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. May we not be mere hearers of the Word this morning, but may we be doers of God's Word. So follow along as I read Romans 12, 1 and 2. The Apostle Paul says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the eternal truth of our God. May He write His truth on our hearts. Well, as Paul begins this application-heavy section of the book of Romans, he gives us a vivid metaphor for the Christian life. Do you see the metaphor in verse 1? This passage teaches that Christians are to offer their whole selves as a sacrifice to God. We are to be the sacrifice. We are to offer ourselves as a sacrifice to God. The Christian life is a life of offering oneself fully as a sacrifice of worship to God. This metaphor, obviously, is drawn from the Old Testament sacrificial system. In the Old Testament, worshipers brought unblemished animals to sacrifice on the altar. However, Paul says that we are to be the sacrifice. We are to offer ourselves on the altar to God. It's amazing to me how many people call themselves Christians who look exactly like the world around them. There's virtually no difference between them and their unbelieving neighbors. They watch the same things on TV. They have the same political views. They use the same language. They have the same worldview, etc., etc. There's no discernible difference between them and their neighbors. There's no discernible sacrifice to God in the way that they live. This is not what we've been called to as followers of Jesus. Being a Christian doesn't mean offering a few things to God. It is offering everything to God. The Christian strives to be fully devoted to God, nothing withheld at all. And it's not as if Christians, any Christians achieve this at any point. I know I certainly don't. However, this is what a Christian strives for. A complete surrender. A total abandonment to God. Everything laid on His altar. So are you today totally devoted to God? Like, have you today completely surrendered yourself to your Creator and Redeemer? Is your life a living sacrifice? Can you say that you are a living sacrifice to God? Well, to help us evaluate that, to help us be that, let's pay careful attention to what Paul teaches us here And let's allow God's Word to shake us to our core as we embrace what we've been called to. I want to study this passage under three headings. Really simple outline this morning. Motivation, exhortation, and transformation. Motivation, motivation, exhortation, and transformation. And at the end, we'll add application, but there'll also be application throughout. So first, let's consider the motivation. Motivation. So in verse 1, Paul begins with four words or phrases meant to slow us way down. Chapters 9 through 11 of Romans were jam-packed with truth after truth after truth that led to the crescendo of the doxology at the end of chapter 11. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. And then Paul takes a long, dramatic pause here. 
He hits the brakes to sort of show us the taillights so that we will slow down. He says, notice, I appeal to you. Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. So after the heights of this doxology, staring out into the vast horizon of God's glorious character, God's glorious plan for his people, it's as if Paul turns to us, his readers, he looks us in the eye and he entreats us to consider how this impacts our lives, to consider what it is that we're supposed to do in response to who God is and what he has done for us. The first phrase there, I appeal to you, is an authoritative plea. This is not a suggestion or just a piece of good wisdom that we can take or leave. The great apostle, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, urges us, appeals to us to live in a manner worthy of the gospel he has been exulting in. He says, I appeal to you. He grabs us by the shoulders and says, I'm exhorting you. I'm calling you to something. And notice how he addresses his readers. He says, I appeal to you, brothers. No, no, no doubt this word was deliberately chosen by Paul. He's been addressing the tension between Jews and Gentiles in the church. He's gone to great lengths in chapters 9 through 11 to show how God's plan includes both Jews and Gentiles in the same olive tree. But now he addresses them together as brothers. This shows that with this transition into chapter 12, the distinctions between the natural branches, Israel, and the grafted in branches, the Gentiles, those distinctions have faded away. They are all family together, and thus they have the same calling to give themselves as a living sacrifice to God. I appeal to you, brothers. But then notice that Paul uses two separate phrases that gives the ground or the motivation for this exhortation to present ourselves to God. He says, therefore. I appeal to you, therefore. This is Paul's way of connecting this appeal to everything he has just said in chapters 1 through 11. He is saying, because these things are true, this is how we should respond. Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, because the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, this is how we respond. This is how we live. But Paul doesn't just say, therefore, as we focused on last Sunday, Paul gives the ultimate motivation for obedience in this phrase, by the mercies of God. We can only offer ourselves fully to God by His incredible mercies. Notice the plural, mercies of God. This is Paul's way of summarizing the glorious gospel in chapters 1 through 11. Mercy is the, the good that comes to us, who, people who don't deserve anything. It's God withholding what we do deserve. See, we are deserving of God's wrath, Paul explained in chapters 1 through 3. But God has not given us what we deserve. He has put His Son forward as a sacrifice of atonement so that we can have justification by faith and resurrection life and eternal security. The myriad of mercies of God to us in the gospel is the motivation and the power to obey God's commands. 
Friends, as we discussed last week, the only way we will ever obey is if we are captivated by God's mercy to us in Jesus. It is only by the amazing mercy of God that we could ever obey what God calls us to obey. And so Paul is making a vital connection between what we believe and how we live. Our theology should fuel our obedience. Friends, this is why theology matters. This is why knowing what we believe and knowing it as well as we can matters. We have to not only know what we believe, but we have to be gripped by it in such a way that it becomes the very motivation for why we do what we do. But friends, this also reminds us that we cannot just love theology and neglect obedience. That's perhaps the warning that you and I need to hear today. We can be sure that the truths of the gospel we know are not being embraced if we continue in disobedience to God's commands. We can't say we love theology, but it not dramatically change the way that we live. If our theology doesn't lead to actual life change, it means nothing. That's the significance of this, therefore, by the mercies of God. From the beginning of the book of Romans, Paul has said that one of his goals in writing this entire letter is the obedience of faith. Not just obedience, but the obedience of faith. That is, obedience that comes from our faith. Obedience that springs from what we believe. Faith in the gospel leads to obedience. And so let me ask you this morning, and this will be the evaluation for four or five months as we go through Romans 12 through 16 together. What is your motivation for living the Christian life? Why do you seek to do what God says? Or maybe a more practical question for right now is, why are you here this morning? Why are you here? What is your motivation for being here? Are you motivated by fear of punishment? As if God's going to send trials into your life if you disobey Him? Are you motivated by obligation or duty with no delight or desire to obey? Are you motivated by earning God's favor as if you have to pay God back for all that He has done for you? Friends, no other motivation will be sufficient to create in us true, heartfelt, passionate obedience that pleases and honors the Lord. Only the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ can be the true and empowering motivation and ground of obedience for a life of obedience when we are captivated by God's mercy, when we are amazed at what God has done and who He is for us, we will offer ourselves fully to God in obedience to Him as a sacrifice of worship. Again, last Sunday we spent an entire sermon on that point. And so I'm going to move to the second heading, exhortation. We see the motivation, but what's the exhortation to us in this passage? Well, the appeal from the great apostle at the end of verse 1 is present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The word bodies here implies our whole selves, everything we are. 
But don't mistake this for a merely spiritual act, as if we can give our hearts to God, but do what we want with our bodies. An offering is not pleasing to God if it is merely invisible and inward. It must be carried out in concrete ways involving every part of us. In other words, our offering of ourselves to God can't be merely internalized. It will be external, which I think is the emphasis of the word bodies here. In other words, we cannot say we've offered our whole self to God if we're not physically obeying God in real life. The Christian life is just as much outward as it is inward and spiritual. Yes, the outward flows from the inward and not vice versa. So in that way, the inward is more important, but that doesn't mean the outward is unimportant. It is just as important. Now, I see five ways that Paul clarifies this offering, presenting of our bodies to the Lord here. And so let's kind of break this apart phrase by phrase. Five ways that he clarifies what this is. How we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. First, Paul says we're to be a continual sacrifice. We're to be a continual sacrifice. The idea behind the verb to present is not that it's a one-time event, kind of like the moment we trusted in Jesus. Yes, we are to definitively devote ourselves to the Lord at the beginning of our Christian life, but this exhortation is to do this continually to present ourselves day by day, moment by moment, to lay ourselves on God's altar at every point in our lives, to be a living sacrifice. And that's the second clarification Paul gives. He says we are to be a living sacrifice. We're to be a continual sacrifice. We're to be a living sacrifice. And so this is a really weird pairing of words, is it not? Living sacrifice is an oxymoron. Right? A sacrifice, by its very nature, dies. So how can we be a living dead thing? A living sacrifice? Well, there's a couple ways we could understand this. Maybe this is a theological statement, referring back to the reality that we talked about last week, that we've been made alive in Jesus. We were dead and we have been made alive. We are a living sacrifice in the sense of Romans 6.13, which says, present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Present yourself to God as one who's been made alive in Jesus. You're alive in Jesus, and thus you're a living sacrifice. Offer yourself to God knowing this, that you have been made alive in Jesus' resurrection. Or this phrase, living sacrifice, might emphasize the truth that we have to continually offer ourselves like the first point because we go on living after we die. We go on living after we are crucified with Jesus. Our whole lives are to be lived by dying to ourselves in Jesus. In other words, live by dying. Live by dying to yourself, to your dreams, to your goals, to your plans. More than one commentator has made the Point on this, that the problem with living sacrifices is that they keep trying to get off the altar. I feel that in my soul, don't you? I'm prone to wonder, prone to leave the God I love. I often think it would be easier if just 
This offering of ourselves to God was just like a one-time epic moment in our lives where we would just with all the faith we can muster once and for all say, I'm yours, God, and no one else's. And then we're immediately in God's presence with no sin. Wouldn't that be so much easier? But that's not the way God has called us to do it. He calls us to live our lives struggling to stay on the altar as a living sacrifice, to continually die to ourselves, to continually benefit from that union with Jesus' resurrection that we have in the gospel. The third clarifying thought here is that we're to be a holy sacrifice, a living sacrifice, a continual sacrifice, and a holy sacrifice. The word holy means to be set apart for God's purposes. In other words, we don't We don't give to God. We don't offer to God our leftovers. This is to be all of us set apart for God and His glory. We're to be a pure and spotless bride set apart for our King. We're to offer ourselves to God as a holy, a pure, a set-apart sacrifice to Him. You see, God deserves and demands our best. And so when we are tempted to sin, friends, we respond by saying, no thank you, I belong to another. I've been set apart for a higher purpose than this temptation to sin. We're called to be a holy sacrifice. Fourth, Paul says we're to be an acceptable sacrifice. We're to be an acceptable sacrifice. Or your translation may say, well-pleasing to God. We're called to be well-pleasing to God. So a sacrifice, by its very nature, is offered to please the one to whom it is offered. A sacrifice is supposed to please the one to whom it is offered. Friends, I think sometimes in the Reformed community, we can get the notion that we could never please the Lord no matter what we do. And it is true that there is nothing good in us to offer to the Lord. But as a sacrifice that has been justified in Jesus and united to Him, our service to the Lord is pleasing to Him. The Lord takes delight when His people continually offer themselves as living sacrifices to Him. Clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, we are acceptable to the Lord. We are pleasing to Him. Yes, you, with all of your ugliness, with all of your wickedness, you, if you are in Jesus, are well-pleasing to the Lord, are an acceptable sacrifice to Him. And friends, is this not our ultimate aim? To please the Lord in everything, to be acceptable to Him. This is how the gospel radically reorients our lives. We once lived only for ourselves, like everyone else in the world. We once lived only for ourselves. We once only cared about our glory. We once only cared about our comforts. But now we have this highest of aims, to be a sweet aroma to the Lord by offering ourselves as a sacrifice to Him continually. Well, The fifth clarification of how we present ourselves is that we're to be a worshipful sacrifice. We're to be a worshipful sacrifice. Sacrifice. Paul says, this is our spiritual worship. How do we worship? What, it, what does the Lord want from us as worship? That he, to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice continually to him. Now, your translation probably has a footnote here that says something like, this could be translated, your rational service. The Greek word translated spiritual here is where we get our word for logic. So it's as if Paul may be saying, this is the only logical response to the mercies of God. When you see the mercies of God, the only reasonable response is this. This is a no-brainer, Paul says. 
It's the only reasonable thing to do. It's not extraordinary or amazing. It's what is reasonable in light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, friends, if you see and hear of the mercies of God to save you, and you don't respond by giving your whole self to God as a living sacrifice, you haven't sufficiently grasped the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's the main exhortation of this passage. In view of God's mercies, your life is to be a continually living sacrifice, devoted fully to God. This is how God is worshipped, Paul says. So are you devoted to God? Are you fully devoted to God? Are you devoted in body, mind, in your time, with your money, with your relationships, with every part of you, are you fully devoted to God? See, friends, here's the thing. A sacrifice no longer belongs to the one who gives it. You can't sacrifice something and then take it back. A sacrifice belongs to the one to whom you give it. And so this passage is calling us to completely die to ourself, to our dreams, to our goals, to our plans, to our comforts. Are we willing right now to give up claim on our whole self in order to please the one who created and redeemed us? And that's the question we face every single day of our lives. Consider the picture of marriage. When you marry someone, you say yes to them. And in saying yes to them, you are saying no to everyone else in the whole world as a spouse. Right? Saying yes means saying no to everyone else. And in a similar way, when you say yes to God, you are saying no to everything else as a controlling narrative of your life. You're saying no to anything that is not in line with God's plans, God's purposes for you. If you offer your whole self to God today, you are deciding not to offer yourself to greed or lust or jealousy or slothfulness or 10,000 other things that displease the Lord. By the mercies of God, because of the glorious truth of the gospel, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And where does that lead? Well, Paul continues by calling us in this third section, number three, to transformation. The transformation. In verse two, Paul begins to flesh out what it looks like in real life to be a living sacrifice. Now listen, Paul is going to continue to flesh this out all the way through chapter 15. So over the next few months, everything we talk about is going to be a response to this offering of ourselves fully in hopes of being transformed by this glorious gospel. All of the ways through chapters 12, 13, 14, 15, he's calling us to this. But notice where he starts. The first thing that he says is that we should not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of our minds. Don't be conformed to this world is a command. Let that sink in. God says, don't be pressed into the mold of the world. Don't be like Plato and allow this present age to shape you however it wants. 1 John 2.15 commands us, do not love the world or the things of the world. By these commands, we should be keenly aware 
that this is what the world is trying to do. The world is trying to get us to love it. The world is trying to press us into its mold. It's trying to shape us according to its values. The world wants to tell us how to think and how to spend our money and what to do with our time and what goals to aim at. Every show, every movie, every news broadcast, every book, every advertisement is trying to mold us in a certain way. We are constantly bombarded by the images of this age, the pull of this age. And God says, don't be conformed to this world. Resist the pull to just swim with the stream. Evaluate yourself on this. What what are the shaping influences of your life? Who or what are you imitating? See, we all imitate what we admire. And so who do you admire? Who are you seeking to please? What are you being conformed to? Well, Paul also tells us how to resist conforming to this age. He says, notice, we are to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. Don't be conformed, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds. Our hearts follow whatever captivates our minds. I've been meditating on that sentence for a few weeks now. Our hearts follow whatever captivates our minds. What we think about is what we will be conformed to. And so we need to renew our minds continually by the truth of God. Are you loving God with all your mind? Are you setting your mind on things above? Colossians 2, 3, 2. Is God your constant meditation? Do you you feed your mind on the nourishing fruit of God and His glorious character regularly? Friends, do you expect to be a mature, stable Christian, but refuse to saturate your mind with the things of God? What makes you think that you could spend your days browsing social media, scrolling through reels, watching Netflix, listening to the news, and because you come to church a few times a month, that you'll be transformed. Romans 12.2 calls us to be saturated in thinking about the glory of Christ. This is a call to read your Bible every day. This is a call to meditate on and memorize portions of the Bible. This is a call to read good, God-centered Christian books. This is a call to be part of the meetings of the church where you're exposed to the things of God like Sunday morning Bible study, community groups, Wednesday night studies. This is a call to be a reader and a thinker and a constant learner. Christians are thinkers, and thinkers are readers and meditators and studiers. This does not mean we all have to be nerds. Please understand that. This just means our minds can't be light and fluffy like cotton candy. We we have to think about things that are glorious and true and weighty and stable. Cotton candy just gets shaped by whatever comes along. Friends, the good news is that no matter how light and fluffy you have been to this point, you can make small changes that will go a long way in helping you be transformed and renew your mind continually. Listen, today is day one of the rest of your life. Will you obey this command and be transformed by setting your mind on things above, by renewing your mind with the truth and the beauty and the glory of God? Let me suggest three specific practices to help us renew our minds. These are just suggestions. These don't make us good Christians. Listen, Jesus is enough. 
I'm not talking about legalism here, but these practices will serve us in continually renewing our minds. And these aren't the only three ways. There are a myriad of ways. But let's get started over a lifetime with at least these three practices that will transform us by renewing our minds. Number one, read the Bible every day. Read the Bible every day. Why would you not do this? Like of all the things you could do every day, all the things you do do every day, make reading, studying, memorizing God's Word a priority. You don't have to read through the whole Bible in a year. You don't have to read eight chapters a day. But just be reading the Bible regularly, chapter a day. Read through the whole New Testament this year. Just be reading God's Word continually, renewing your mind by His truth. Secondly, be always reading a good Christian book. Be always reading a good Christian book. What are you reading is a great question we should ask each other in discipleship. Great discipleship question. What are you reading? Right? You could have a stack of books that you're reading, or you could have one at a time, but just be reading something that is good for your soul. If you want recommendations, start with the book table in the foyer. There's 10 or 12 books there that are great. Ask someone else what they have been impacted by. Ask them what their favorite books are. Get them. I'd love for many people to come up to me today and ask, what book do you recommend I start reading? Be always reading something that is transforming your mind, that is helping you understand God's word and God's ways. Third, fill your margin moments with listening to Bible-saturated content, such as... Worship music, sermons, audiobooks, podcasts. Fill your margin moments with listening to Bible-saturated content. You know what margin moments are? The moments in our day that we just kind of throw away on mindless thinking. Utilize those moments in the car, driving to work or to the grocery store, doing housework, exercising, to fill your mind with God's truth. Reduce the amount of time you allow the world to tell you what to think about. And fill those seemingly meaningless margin moments with the truth of God. God transforms our whole being through our minds. We are transformed as we see and understand and embrace the truth of our God. And notice from verse 2 the awesome benefit of not being conformed to the world, but being transformed by the renewal of our minds. Paul says when we obey this, we will be able to discern the good and acceptable and perfect will of our God. When we are transformed and renewed, we are tested, and that testing gives us discernment, and that discernment helps us know the will of God. I don't think this is referring to the knowing of specifics of God's will, like who to marry or where to go to college. I think this is saying we will know what pleases the Lord. We will know his heart. This is, we will know right from wrong. We will know what he's called us to. We will be transformed in such a way that we will be sensitive to God and to his ways and to his wisdom. God's will is good for us. It is perfect for us. Why would we not want to know and do the will of our God? And Paul shows us how to discern the will of God. How do you know the will of God? Offer yourself to God as a living sacrifice. Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind, and by testing, you'll discern the perfect and good and pleasing will of our God. Let me close with three application points. 
This text points us to the path of true worship and transformation in our lives. And so just as a summary, here's three things to meditate on. I hope we can talk about these in community group later today. Number one, contemplate the mercies of God. Contemplate the mercies of God. Make the mercies of God to you in the gospel your constant meditation. Number two, continually offer yourself to God. Continually offer yourself. And I mean this in the most practical way. At the beginning of each day, at the beginning of each segment of each day, at the start of every season of life and every big decision and every life change, give yourself fully to God. Third, and finally, consider the cost of conformity to the world. Consider the cost of conformity to the world. The cost is this. If you are conformed to this world, you will not know and do the perfect will of God. Consider the cost. Consider what you miss when you're conformed to this present age. You miss out on the perfect and pleasing will of God. And so by the mercies of God, offer yourself to God. Don't offer yourself to the world. Offer yourself to God. Don't offer yourself to the world. Let's run to our perfect Savior now, and let's benefit from his saving and sanctifying mercies. Lord Jesus, we run to you. We run to you because you're the one who said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. So we come longing for rest because your yoke is easy and your burden is light. Your commands are not burdensome. They are life-giving. And so, Lord, I pray that by your mercies, you would help us to offer ourselves as living sacrifices on your altar today. Oh, God, make us fully yours. Make us holy and totally yours. Lord, help us not to be conformed to this world, but transform us, Lord God, by the renewal of our minds. Do this for our good and for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.